0: Chapter Thirteen of the Red Thumb Mark. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Richard Kilmer. The Red Thumb Mark by R. Austin Freeman. Chapter Thirteen Murder by Post. The next few days were perhaps the most unhappy that I have known. My life, indeed, since I had left the hospital, had been one of many disappointments, and much privation. Unfulfilled desires, and ambitions unrealized, had combined with distaste for the daily drudgery that had fallen to my lot, to embitter my poverty, and cause me to look with gloomy distrust upon the unpromising future but no sorrow that i had hitherto experienced could compare with the grief that i now felt in contemplating the irretrievable ruin of what i knew to be the greatest passion of my life for to a man like myself of few friends and deep affections one great emotional upheaval exhausts the possibility of nature leaving only the capacity for feeble and ineffective echoes The edifice of love that is raised upon the ruins of a great passion can compare with the original no more than can the paltry mosque that perches upon the mound of Jonah with the glories of the palace that lies entombed beneath. I had made a pretext to write to Juliet, and had received a reply quite frank and friendly in tone, by which I knew that she had not, as some women would have done, set the blame upon me for our temporary outburst of emotion. And yet, there was a subtle difference from her previous manner of writing that only emphasized the finality of our separation. I think Thorndyke perceived that something had gone awry, though I was at great pains to maintain a cheerful exterior and keep myself occupied. And he probably formed a pretty shrewd guess at the nature of the trouble. But he said nothing and I only judged that he had observed some change in my manner by the fact that there was blended with his usual quiet geniality an almost insensible note of sympathy and affection. A couple of days after my last interview with Juliet, an event occurred which served, certainly, to relieve the tension and distract my thoughts, though not in a very agreeable manner. It was the pleasant, repulseful hour after dinner, when it was our custom to sit in our respective easy-chairs and, as we smoked our pipes, discuss some of the many topics in which we had a common interest. The postman had just discharged into the capricious letter-box an avalanche of letters and circulars, and as I sat glancing through the solitary letter that had fallen to my share, I looked from time to time at Thorndyke, and noticed, as I had often done before, with some surprise, a curious habit that he had of turning over and closely scrutinizing every letter and package before he opened it. I observed, Thorndike, I now ventured to remark, that you always examine the outside of a letter before looking at the inside. I have seen other people do the same, and it has always appeared to me a singularly foolish proceeding. Why speculate over an unopened letter, when a glance at the contents will tell you all there is to know.' "'You are perfectly right,' he answered. "'If the object of the inspection is to discover who is the sender of the letter, but that is not my object. In my case, the habit is one that has been deliberately cultivated, not in reference to letters only, but to everything that comes into my hands, the habit of allowing nothing to pass without a certain amount of conscious attention.' The observant man is, in reality, the attentive man, and the so-called power of observation is simply the capacity for continuous attention. As a matter of fact, I have found in practice that the habit is a useful one, even in reference to letters. More than once I have gleaned a hint from the outside of a letter that has proved valuable when applied to the contents. Here, for instance, is a letter which has been opened after being fastened up, apparently by the aid of steam. The envelope is soiled and rubbed, and smells faintly of stale tobacco, and has evidently been carried in a pocket along with a well-used pipe. Why should it have been opened? On reading it, I perceive that it should have reached me two days ago, and that the date has been skilfully altered from the 13th to the 15th. The inference is that my correspondent as a highly untrustworthy clerk. But the correspondent may have carried the letter in his own pocket, I objected. Hardly, replied Thorndike. He would not have troubled to steam his own letter open and close it again. He would have cut the envelope and addressed a fresh one. This the clerk could not do, because the letter was confidential and was addressed in the principal's handwriting. And the principal would have almost certainly added a postscript. And moreover, He does not smoke. This, however, is all very obvious. But here is something rather more subtle, which I have put aside for a more detailed examination. What do you make of it?" He handed me a small parcel, to which was attached by a string a typewritten address label, the back of which bore the printed inscription, James Bartlett and Sons, Cigar Manufacturers, London and Havana. I'm afraid, said I, after turning the little packet over and examining every part of it minutely, that this is rather too subtle for me. The only thing that I observe is that the typewriter has bungled the address considerably. Otherwise, this seems to me a very ordinary packet indeed. Well, you have observed one point of interest at any rate, said Thorndike, taking the packet from me. But let us examine the thing systematically and note down what we see. In the first place, you will notice that the label is an ordinary luggage label, such as you may buy at any stationer's, with its own string attached. Now, manufacturers commonly use a different and more substantial pattern, which is attached by the string of the parcel. But that is a small matter. What is much more striking is the address on the label. It is typewritten, and as you say, typed very badly. Do you know anything about typewriters? Very little. Then you do not recognize the machine. Well, this label was typed with a Blickenderfer, an excellent machine, but not the form most commonly selected for the rough work of a manufacturer's office. But we will let that pass. The important point is this. The Blickenderfer company makes several forms of machine, the smallest and lightest of which is the literary, specially designed for the use of journalists and men of letters now this label was typed with the literary machine or at least with the literary type wheel which is really a very remarkable circumstance indeed how do you know that i asked by this asterisk which has been written by mistake the inexpert operator having pressed down the figure lever instead of the one for capitals the literary type wheel is the only one that has an asterisk as I noticed when I was thinking of purchasing a machine. Here, then, we have a very striking fact, for even if a manufacturer chose to use a blick in his factory, it is inconceivable that he should select the literary form in preference to the more suitable commercial machine. Yes, I agree. It is certainly very singular. And now, pursued Thorndike, to consider the writing itself. It has been done by an absolute beginner." He has failed to space in two places. He has written five wrong letters. And he has written figures instead of capitals in two instances. Yes, he has made a shocking muddle of it. I wonder he didn't throw the label away and type another. Precisely, said Thorndyke. And if we wish to find out why he did not, we have only to look at the back of the label. You see that the name of the firm, instead of being printed on the label itself in the usual manner, is printed on a separate slip of paper, which is pasted on the label. A most foolish and clumsy arrangement, involving an immense waste of time. But if we look closely at the printed slip itself, we perceive something still more remarkable. For that slip has been cut down to fit the label, and has been cut with a pair of scissors. The edges are not quite straight, and in one place the overlap, which is so characteristic of the cut made with scissors, can be seen quite plainly. He handed the packet to me with a reading lens, through which I could distinctly make out the points he had mentioned. Now I need not point out to you, he continued, that these slips would ordinarily have been trimmed by the printer to the correct size in his machine, which would leave an absolutely true edge. Nor need I say that no sane businessman would adopt such a device as this. The slip of paper has been cut with scissors to fit the label, and it has then been pasted on the surface that it has been made to fit, when all this waste of time and trouble, which in practice means money, could have been saved by printing the name on the label itself. Yes, that is so, but I still do not see why the fellow should not have thrown away this label and typed another. Look at the slip again, said Thorndyke. It is faintly but evenly discolored, and, to me, has the appearance of having been soaked in water. Let us, for the moment... Assume that it has been. That would look as if it had been removed from some other package, which again would suggest that the person using it had only the one slip, which he had soaked off the original package, dried, cut down, and pasted on the present label. If he pasted it on before typing the address, which he would most probably have done, he might well be unwilling to risk destroying it by soaking it a second time. You think, then, there is a suspicion that the package may have been tampered with? There is no need to jump to conclusions, replied Thorndyke. I merely gave this case as an instance showing that careful examination of the outside of a package or letter may lead us to bestow a little extra attention on the contents. Now, let us open it and see what those contents are. With a sharp knife he divided the outside cover, revealing a stout cardboard box. "'wrapped in a number of advertisement sheets. "'The box, when the lid was raised, "'was seen to contain a single cigar, "'a large cheroot, packed in cotton wool. "'A tricky by Jove!' I exclaimed. "'Your own special fancy, Thorndyke.' "'Yes, and another anomaly at once, you see, "'which might have escaped our notice "'if we had not been on the qui "'As a matter of fact, I don't see,' said I, "'You will think me an awful blockhead. "'But I don't perceive anything singular "'in a cigar manufacturer sending a sample cigar.' "'You read the label, I think,' replied Thorndyke. "'However, let us look at one of these leaflets "'and see what they say.' "'Ah, here we are. Messrs. Bartlett and Sons, "'who own extensive plantations on the island of Cuba, "'manufacture their cigars exclusively from selected leaves "'grown by themselves.' They would hardly make a trichinopoly cheroot from leaf grown in the West Indies, so we have here a striking anomaly of an East Indian cigar sent to us by a West Indian grower. And what do you infer from that? Principally that this cigar, which, by the way, is an uncommonly fine specimen, and which I would not smoke for 10,000 pounds, is deserving of very attentive examination. He produced from his pocket a powerful doublet lens, with the aid of which he examined every part of the surface of the cigar, and finally, both ends. Look at the small end, he said, handing me the cigar and the lens, and tell me if you notice anything. I focused the lens on the flush-cut surface of closely rolled leaf, and explored every part of it minutely. It seems to me, I said, that the leaf is open slightly in the center, as if a fine wire had been passed up it. "So it appears to me," replied Thorndyke, "and, as we are in agreement so far, we will carry our investigations a step further." He laid the cigar down on the table, and with the keen, thin bladed penknife neatly divided it lengthwise into two halves. "Ece signum!" exclaimed Thorndyke, as the two parts fell asunder, and for a few moments we stood silently regarding the dismembered cheroot for about half an inch from the small end, there appeared a little circular patch of white, chalky material, which, by the even manner in which it was diffused among the leaf, had evidently been deposited from a solution. "'Our ingenious friend again,' I surmise," said Thorndyke at length, taking up one of the halves and examining the white patch through his lens. "'A thoughtful soul, Jervis. and original, too. "'I wish his talents could be applied in some other direction.' I shall have to remonstrate with him, if he becomes troublesome. "'It is your duty to society, Thorndyke,' I exclaimed passionately, "'to have this infernal, cold-blooded scoundrel arrested instantly. "'Such a man is a standing menace to the community. "'Do you really know who sent this thing? "'I can form a pretty shrewd guess, which, however, is not quite the same thing. "'But you see, he has not been quite so clever this time.' for he has left one or two traces by which his identity might be ascertained. Indeed? What traces has he left? Ah, now, there is a nice little problem for us to consider. He settled himself in his easy chair and proceeded to fill his pipe with the air of a man who was about to discuss a matter of merely general interest. Let us consider what information this ingenious person has given us about himself. In the first place, He evidently has a strong interest in my immediate decease. Now, why should he feel so urgent a desire for my death? Can it be a question of property? Hardly. For I am far from a rich man, and the provisions of my will are known to me alone. Can it then be a question of private enmity or revenge? I think not. To the best of my belief, I have no private enemies, whatever.' there remains only my vocation as an investigator in the fields of legal and criminal research. His interest in my death must, therefore, be connected with my professional activities. Now I am at present conducting an exhumation which may lead to a charge of murder, but if I were to die tonight, the inquiry would be carried on with equal efficiency by Professor Spicer or some other toxicologist." my death would not affect the prospects of the accused, and so, in one or two other cases that I have in hand, they could be equally well conducted by someone else. The inference is that our friend is not connected with any of these cases, but that he believes me to possess some exclusive information concerning him, believes me to be the one person in the world who suspects and can convict him. Let us assume that the existence of such a person a person of whose guilt I alone have evidence. Now this person, being unaware that I have communicated my knowledge to a third party, would reasonably suppose that by making away with me, he had put himself in a position of security. Here, then, is our first point. The sender of this offering is probably a person concerning whom I hold certain exclusive information. But see? Now the interesting corollary that follows from this. I, alone, suspect this person. Therefore, I have not published my suspicions, or others would suspect him, too. Why, then, does he suspect me of suspecting him, since I have not spoken? Evidently, he, too, must be in possession of exclusive information. In other words, my suspicions are correct, for, if they were not, he could not be aware of their existence.' the next point is the selection of this rather unusual type of cigar why should he have sent a trichinopoly instead of an ordinary havana such as bartlett's actually manufacture? it looks as if he were aware of my peculiar predilection and thus consulting my personal tastes has guarded against the chance of my giving the cigar to some other person we may therefore infer that our friend probably has some knowledge of my habits the third point is what is the social standing of this gentle stranger, who we will call X? Now, Bartlett's do not send their advertisements and samples to Thomas, Richard, and Henry. They send, chiefly, to members of the professions and men of means and position. It is true that the original package might have been annexed by a clerk, office boy, or domestic servant, but the probabilities are that X received the package himself and this is borne out by the fact that he was able to obtain access to a powerful alkaloid poison, such as this undoubtedly is. In that case, he would probably be a medical man or a chemist, I suggested. "'Not necessarily,' replied Thorndyke. "'The laws relating to poisons are so badly framed and administered "'that any well-to-do person who has the necessary knowledge "'can obtain almost any poison that he wants.' but social position is an important factor, whence we may conclude that X belongs at least to the middle class. The fourth point relates to the personal qualities of X. Now, it is evident from this instance alone that he is a man of exceptional intelligence, of considerable general information, and both ingenious and resourceful. This cigar device is not only clever and original, but it has been adapted to the special circumstances with remarkable forethought. Thus, the cheroot was selected, apparently, for two excellent reasons. First, that it was the most likely form to be smoked by the person intended, and second, that it did not require to have the end cut off, which might have led to the discovery of the poison. The plan also shows a certain knowledge of chemistry. The poison was not intended merely to be dissolved in the moisture of the mouth, The idea, evidently, was that the steam generated by the combustion of the leaf at the distal end would condense in the cooler part of the cigar and dissolve the poison, and the solution would then be drawn into the mouth. Then the nature of the poison and certain similarities of procedure seemed to identify X with the cyclist who used that ingenious bullet. The poison in this case is a white, non-crystalline solid, The poison contained in the bullet was a solution of white, non-crystalline solid, which analysis showed to be the most poisonous of all alkaloids. The bullet was virtually a hypodermic syringe. The poison in this cigar has been introduced in the form of an alcoholic or ethereal solution by a hypodermic syringe. We shall thus be justified in assuming that the bullet and the cigar came from the same person, and if this be so, we may say that X is a person of considerable knowledge, of great ingenuity, and no mean skill as a mechanician, as shown by the manufacture of the bullet. These are our principal facts, to which we may add the surmise that he has recently purchased a second-hand blickensdurfer of the literary form, or at least fitted with a literary type wheel. I don't quite see how you arrive at that. I said in some surprise. It's merely a guess, you know, he replied, though a probable one. In the first place, he is obviously unused to typing, as the numerous mistakes show. Therefore, he has not had that machine very long. The type is that which is peculiar to the Blickensdurfer. And in one of the mistakes, an asterisk has been printed in place of a letter. But the literary type wheel is the only one that has the asterisk. As to the age of the machine, there are evident signs of where, for some of the letters have lost their sharpness. And this is most evident in the case of those letters which are the most used. The E, you will notice, for instance, is much worn, and E occurs more frequently than any other letter of the alphabet. Hence the machine, if recently purchased, was bought second-hand. But, I objected, it may not have been his own machine at all. That is quite possible, answered Thorndyke, though considering the secrecy that would be necessary, the probabilities are in favor of his having bought it. But, in any case, we have here a means of identifying the machine, should we ever meet with it. He picked up the label and handed it to me, together with his pocket lens. Look closely at the E that we've been discussing. It occurs five times. In Thorndike, in Bench, in Inner, and in Temple. Now, in each case, you will notice a minute break in the loop. "'just at the summit. "'That break corresponds to a tiny dent in the type, "'caused probably by its striking some small, hard object. "'I can make it out quite distinctly,' I said, "'and it should be a most valuable point for identification. "'It should be almost conclusive,' Thorndyke replied, "'especially when joined to other facts "'that would be elicited by a search of his premises. "'And now let us just recapitulate the facts "'which our friend X has placed at our disposal.' First, X is a person concerning whom I possess certain exclusive information. Second, he has some knowledge of my personal habits. Third, he is a man of some means and social position. Fourth, he is a man of considerable knowledge, ingenuity, and mechanical skill. Fifth, he has probably purchased, quite recently, a second-hand blick fitted with a literary type wheel. Sixth, that the machine, whether his own or some other person's property, can be identified by a characteristic mark on the small e. If you will note down those six points and add that X is probably an expert cyclist and a fairly good shot with a rifle, you may possibly be able presently to complete the equation X equals question mark. I'm afraid, I said, I do not possess the necessary data, but I suspect you do And if it is so, I repeat that it is your duty to society to say nothing of your clients whose interests would suffer by your death to have this fellow laid by the heels before he does any mischief. Yes, I shall have to interfere if he becomes really troublesome, but I have reasons for wishing to leave him alone at present. You do really know who he is, then? Well, I think I can solve the equation that I have just offered to you for solution. You see i have certain data as you suggest which you do not possess there is for instance a certain ingenious gentleman concerning whom i hold what i believe to be exclusive information and my knowledge of him does not make it appear unlikely that he might be the author of these neat little plans i am much impressed i said as i put away my notebook after having jotted down the points that thorndyke had advised me to consider "'I am much impressed by your powers of observation "'and your capacity for reasoning "'from apparently trivial data. "'But I do not see, even now, "'why you viewed that cigar "'with such immediate and decided suspicion. "'There was nothing, actually, "'to suggest the existence of poison in it, "'and yet you seemed to form the suspicion at once "'and to search for it "'as though you expected to find it.' "'Yes,' replied Thorndyke. "'to a certain extent you are right.' The idea of a poisoned cigar was not new to me, and thereby hangs a tale. He laughed softly, and gazed into the fire with eyes that twinkled with quiet amusement. You have heard me say, he resumed after a short pause, that when I first took these chambers, I had practically nothing to do. I had invented a new variety of medical-legal practice, and had to build it up by slow degrees. And the natural consequence was that for a long time it yielded nothing but almost unlimited leisure. Now, that leisure was by no means wasted, for I employed it in considering the class of cases in which I was likely to be employed, and in working out theoretical examples, and seeing the crimes against the person having nearly always a strong medical interest, I gave them special attention. For instance, I planned a series of murders, selecting royal personages, and great ministers as the victims. And on each murder, I brought to bear all the special knowledge, skill, and ingenuity at my command. I inquired minutely into the habits of my hypothetical victims, ascertained who were their associates, friends, enemies, and servants, considered their diet, their residences, their modes of conveyance, the source of their clothing, and, in fact, everything which it was necessary to know In order to achieve their deaths with certainty and with absolute safety to the murderer how deeply gratified and flattered those great personages would have felt i remarked if they had known how much attention they were receiving yes i suppose it would have been somewhat startling to the prime minister for instance to have learned that he was being watched and studied by an attentive observer and that the arrangements for his decease had been completed down to the minutest detail but of course the application of the method to a particular case was the essential thing, for it brought into view all the incidental difficulties, in meeting which all the really interesting and instructive details were involved. Well, the particulars of these crimes I wrote out at length in my private shorthand, in a journal which I kept for the purpose, and which I need not say I locked up securely in my safe when I was not using it. After completing each case, It was my custom to change sides and play the game over again, from the opposite side of the board. That is to say, I added, as an appendix to each case, an analysis with a complete scheme for the detection of the crime. I have in my safe, at the present moment, six volumes of cases, fully indexed, and I can assure you that they are not only highly instructive reading, but are really valuable as works of reference." that i can readily believe i replied laughing heartily nevertheless at the grotesqueness of the whole proceeding though they might have proved rather incriminating documents if they had passed out of your possession they would never have been read rejoined thorndyke my shorthand is i think quite undecipherable and has been so made intentionally with a view to secrecy and have any of your theoretical cases ever turned up in real life several of them have though very imperfectly planned and carried out as a rule the poisoned cigar is one of them though of course i should never have adopted such a conspicuous device for presenting it and the incident of the other night is a modification for the worst of another in fact most of the intricate and artistic crimes with which i have had to deal professionally have had their more complete and elaborate prototypes in my journals i was silent for some time reflecting on the strange personality of my gifted friend and the singular fitness that he presented for the part that he had chosen to play in the drama of social life but presently my thoughts returned to the peril that overshadowed him and i came back once more to my original question and now thorndyke i said that you have penetrated both the motives and the disguise of this villain what are you going to do is he to be put safely under lock and key "'Or is he to be left in peace and security "'to plan some other and perhaps more successful "'scheme for your destruction?' "'For the present,' replied Thorndyke, "'I am going to put these things in a place of safety. "'Tomorrow you shall come with me to the hospital "'and see me place the ends of the cigar "'in the custody of Dr. Chandler, "'who will make an analysis "'and report on the nature of the poison. "'After that, we shall act in whatever way seems best.' Unsatisfactory as this conclusion appeared, I knew it was useless to raise further objections, and accordingly, when the cigar, with its accompanying papers and wrappings, had been deposited in a drawer, we dismissed it, if not from our thoughts, at least from our conversation. End of Chapter 13 Recording by Richard Kilmer Rio Medina, Texas